Appalachia, the word that evokes a whole passel of reactions. Everything from the beauty of a mountaintop to trailer parks, drugs, and about everything in between. The Appalachian Mountains are indeed the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air. They stretch from eastern Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The folks who live in these mountains have faced an unending number of tragic and just plain odd happenings that cry out for the telling. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and I was born and raised in these very mountains by a family who themselves were born, raised, and lived for generations in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. Come with me and we'll take a look at some of the unending stories that come from within my beloved mountains. And we'll look through the eyes of an old Appalachian at some outside the area as well. Welcome to Season 4 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy my good friends. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you so much for stopping by. Right across the Monongahela River from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that is, sitting on the southern banks of the river, there sits a town called Homestead. Yes, it was the site of the infamous 1892 Homestead strike that led to yet another Appalachian clash by union workers and strike breakers. But that story waits for its own episode, and believe you me, we're going to get to it. But uh, today we're in Homestead for another story. There on a quiet street in a little town lived a quiet boy named Charlie Colley. Charlie was a young teenage genius who everybody thereabouts felt like one day was going to join the ranks of Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell or maybe even Cyrus McCormick in the notoriety of great American inventors. So sit down, take your shoes off, set a spell while we do what we do every week watch the wheels come off and the whole thing run itself right into a ditch right before our very ears. Now back in 1902, Charlie Colley was 17, but already had a patent pending on, in Washington, D.C. for a new type of air brake for a trolley system. But there had been some kinks that he wanted to work out of it, and as fall fell, Charlie's constant obsessive work <clears throat> on the device had done drove him about halfway up the wall. He was mentally and physically exhausted. On top of that, or to top it all off, it was near impossible to find peace and quiet inside the little collie house, which <clears throat> Charlie shared with his mother, Hannah, and a whole horde of children. Now, Hannah had a total of 14 kids, 10 of which were still listed as living at home in the 1900 U.S. federal census. So, he'd done a good bit of ripping his hair out trying to get anything done on his invention, which, by the way, every company that <clears throat> heard about it was interested in it and ready to have it installed in their machines as soon as possible, which meant that <clears throat> Charlie was sitting on a gold mine once he worked out the kinks and was concerned about he was concerned about with the machine in the long run it would turn out that many engineers who reviewed his invention were highly impressed and thought that there really weren't any kinks to work out but uh, you know how inventors are <clears throat> it was uh, more that charlie was obsessed with perfection than anything else and it came <clears throat> that came to his system i mean he just couldn't 
put it down until it worked exactly perfectly the way he wanted it to. But to Charlie, from sunup to sundown, there wasn't a single second's peace in the entire collie house, and I can certainly see why he'd feel that way with ten children living at home. <clears throat> at the age 20, his brother James was the oldest, while baby Joseph at 15 months was the youngest. Their other collie children fell somewhere in the middle there, filling the air with all kind of sounds from everything from squeals of toddlers to sniping of teenagers, the screaming of a baby and the horseplay of six-year-olds. It was enough to make just about anybody grind their teeth into stumps and lose what mind they might have left after that. But despite it all, it was a happy, healthy family, and Hannah Colley was proud of all 14 of her children. She was especially proud of Charlie, his brilliant mind. She was counting on to be the family's salvation. Maybe one day Charlie's invention would do well enough to lift the Colleys out of poverty and out of the cramped-up little house they managed to live in without ripping each other apart. Her husband had died about a year earlier by drowning in the Mahongahela River at Redmond's Mill, and life for the Collies had been a bit of a struggle ever since. And on October 9th, Charlie found his papers and drawings had been stolen. A few weeks earlier, Charlie said that an unidentified Italian man had got in his face and ordered him to stop working on his patent or else he would see to it that Charlie was taken care of and that meant the hard way. Charlie didn't think a whole lot of the man's threat at the time, but he was tree climbing mad after he found the papers missing and all of them, all them months of meticulous nerve-wracking work down the drain. At around 10 o'clock in the evening of October 9th, the Colley family was prepping for bed. Miss Hannah Colley and her 12-year-old daughter, Belle, curled up together in one bed while Joseph, Agnes, and six-year-old twins Adelaide and Raymond slept in another one. Charlie, James, and Harold, the three oldest, had a room next to their mother's room. Now, it was around three o'clock in the morning on October the 10th when Charlie arose, got dressed, careful not to wake anybody up. And he didn't put on his shoes. He tiptoed around in the, down to the cellar, grabbed an axe, and tiptoed back upstairs and entered his mother's room. There was a small kerosene lamp turned down on low on the table next to Miss Collie's bed. Charlie stared at his mother and sister for just a minute. Then he lifted the axe and went to town, and folks, I mean, he went all the way to town. Miss Holly's, Miss Holly's, Collie's, I'm sorry, skull was crushed to, with the first blow of the axe. She never knew what happened, which was probably for the best. She wouldn't have seen the rampage it was coming next now any murderer will tell you that the first strike of a murder is the hardest one to make whether it's shooting stabbing or in this case hacking the second blow comes easier than the first and the rest is just water under the bridge to them nobody was really sure how many whacks from the flat side of the axe were delivered to miss collie but it was said that Charlie had beaten his mother head, mother's head completely to jelly and matted it to the pillowcase. Isabel, or Belle, as she was known to the rest of the family, had slept right through the whole thing next to her mother. She never moved a muscle. Charlie swung at Belle, but missed, causing her to wake up. But before her eyes could even focus on what was happening, it was already too late. The next blow didn't miss, and it killed her. But the uh, 
blows kept coming, 15, 20, 30, until the bed sheets and mattress were completely soaked in blood. It was awful. Beside the beside was the crib where 15-month-old Joseph had slept through all of that. Charlie raised the axe high over his head, and uh, this time there was no hesitation, no swing and a miss, no, no need to deliver more than a single blow either. Miraculously, the baby was still alive when Charlie left the room. Next, he went over to the bed where Agnes, Adelaide, and Raymond were sleeping. Maybe Charlie's chopping had tired him out a bit because the bodies of these children were at least recognizable when the coroner came. For whatever reason, he didn't just bash them to a pulp like he'd done with his mother and Belle. Now, Charlie entered the room where <clears throat> Harry and James were, obviously to the carnage in the adjacent bedroom where they were sleeping next to. Now, the creaking of the door caused James to wake up. He sat up, and in the faint yellow light of his gas lamp, he saw Charlie standing in front of him with an axe clutched in his hand, and the weapon was dripping with blood, and Charlie was splattered from head to toe with the gore of nearly everybody in the house. There was a maniacal grin on his face, and his eyes were just completely glazed over. James knew he had to move fast if he, if he wanted to save his own life or whoever else might still be alive. As soon as Charlie closed the door, James turned out the lamp, putting the room in total darkness. He jumped out of bed just as the axe came crashing down. Charlie, who hadn't seen his older brother leave the bed, <clears throat> rained blow after blow into the mattress until he just got plumb exhausted from swinging it. James heard his brother mumble something he didn't understand. Charlie opened the door, and the room was again lit up a little bit by the glow of his mother's lamp. <clears throat> That's when James lunged for the weapon as Charlie swung wildly at him. His axe grazed him on the arm and embedded itself in the bed frame, and that only made Charlie that much more mad. He pulled the axe loose and rushed at James. James grabbed the chair as a shield. He sidestepped and <clears throat> the, ne the next blow and then used every ounce of his strength to bash Charlie in with the chair. Once it was in pieces on the floor, then he pounced on Charlie, and it looked like an old Georgia championship wrestling match there for a spell. The only thing missing was Gordon Soley make, making the call on the action. Now James, who was three years older and a sight bigger, was scared by Charlie's strength. He thought Charlie had to be possessed by demons or something to be doing that kind of stuff and be that strong with it. Eventually, James was able to pin his brother down and subdue him as he dragged the monster out of the room he saw the horror in the glow of miss hannah's lamp and james later said that when he saw the blood splattered walls and the bodies of his mother and all of his siblings he was, had to try to overcome the urge to kill charlie right there in the kitchen floor folks this ain't over yet i'll be right back you're listening to afterlatching murder mystery and legend with larry bentley Now, folks, James didn't just drag Charlie out of the house. He dragged his brother through the streets of Homestead, fighting him every step and every drag of the way, all the way to the police station and turned him over to Officer Rossier at the police station. Now, Charlie was thrown in the cell immediately, and Officer Rossier went with James back to the Collie house. Four of the victims, believe it or not, were still alive at that point, and Harry the uh, only other college child that, at home that, didn't, that had avoided the hacking and slaughter had already got Dr. Barton on the scene. 
the doctor had made an awful diagnosis of the situation, saying that all the survivors would probably likely be dead before sunrise. Another sibling, Mary, was saved from the attack because she was at a sleepover at the house of a friend. It was reported that Dr. Barton removed two cups worth of crushed bone from the skulls of the victims in an effort to try to help save them. They were taken by train to the South Hospital, South Side Hospital, where nothing back then could be done for them except for just to lay them in a room and make them comfortable and just wait for them to die, basically. Now, meanwhile, Police Chief West Noble had placed two police officers on guard duty to keep the rubberneckers away, but they had their hands full. Crowds flocked to the crime scene, and souvenir hunters, like always back then, tried to carry away souvenirs of the bloody crime. Now, when the crowds grew even bigger the next day, with hundreds of people taking out whittling knives and trying to cut pieces off the front porch and the siding and even chunks of the fence. Now, on Saturday morning, October 11th, funeral services were held for Hannah and Belle at St. Mary Magdalene Church. Now, they were interred in the church cemetery. Now, later that afternoon, the bodies of Anne and Raymond would be buried alongside them. Agnes and Adelaide were still clinging to life at the hospital, as was baby Joseph. Of these children, Agnes would be the only one old enough to testify to ever regain consciousness, which was nothing shy of absolute miracle. On November 4th, Agnes had recovered enough to leave the hospital, though she had no recollection of what had happened, which didn't help nothing. She couldn't help it. It was, I mean, she was nearly killed, and it was a wonder she survived and was able to have any kind of thought at all, let alone just make it. But <clears throat> Warden Edward Lewis, well, he had to pull his pickle out of his watch pocket because for days on end, he'd been watching Charlie, the axe murderer, like a hawk. He was looking for the slightest signs of guilt or remorse, but the boy was calm as a cucumber. Not only that, but he actually got more of these every day. When he asked Charlie about the crime, he told the warden that he had no recollection whatsoever, and that's what knocked his pickle in his watch pocket more than anything did. Now, Detective P.J. Murphy also talked to Charlie and found no signs of insanity whatsoever. It looked to him like Charlie was a happy, healthy, rational young man, and he was eating well, sleeping well, and didn't have the slightest problem. The boy thought that the burglar must have entered the house and slaughtered the entire family while they all slept. Now, if that wasn't already weird enough, things took another odd turn. On Thursday, October 16th, after a man from Ohio came forward and identified the hero of the tragedy, James Crawley, as one of the three men that had beaten and robbed him on the night of October 4th, an another victim who was involved in that robbery had ran from the three robbers and was hit by a train and killed, trying to get away, by the way. But when the magistrate asked James if he was guilty of the charge, well, James nodded. And then, like his younger brother, James cried like a baby when he was dragged off and thrown in jail. The, that new development touched off a firestorm of rumors all around Homestead. Did James have something to do with hacking the whole Collie family into oblivion? And James had admitted to stealing a small sum of money from the man from Ohio after beating him, and Charlie still sat there believing that the killings had been carried out by a burglar. Was, was it possible that James Colley, who had wrestled the bloody axe out of his brother's hands before dragging him to the police station, had 
set Charlie up to take the fall, or after all, I, well, to me it would be a pretty good leap from robbing somebody to taking an axe to everybody in the house, but I'm just podcasting hillbilly, and that's just my outlook. While folks from Pittsburgh area studied on that issue, Adelaide Colley finally passed away quietly, making her the fifth victim of the Homestead Axe murderer. Even experts were divided when it came to sorting through the mess. Two doctors, one of medicine and one of theology, interviewed Charlie and James in jail. Neither could agree on the identity of the real killer. The physician insisted that it was Charlie, while the theologist declared that it was it just had to be James. But all arguments stopped dead a week later when Charlie finally admitted to committing the murders. Yes, I reckon uh, he must have said that, that he took the axe and went hacking and just couldn't stop, and, or something along those lines, because apparently they believed him. There was something else interesting that happened on the same day as Charlie's confession. A letter arrived at the Collie House. It was from the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C., his air brake had been accepted, and all Charlie had to do was to earn his patent was to pay the $20 fee. This, of course, was now an impossibility. He was eventually awarded a patent for his invention anyway on November of 1902. Now, the killer's defense team was about as confident as Sammy Davis Jr. would be in a boxing match against Muhammad Ali and trying to make a plea of insanity. By all accounts... Charlie was a model inmate while locked up in the county jail awaiting his trial. He showed no signs of remorse, nor did he show any signs of mental illness. According to the warden, he kept himself busy reading books. His attorney would later argue that Charlie Colley was a somnambulist and that he had murdered his whole family while sleepwalking and therefore should be spared the death penalty. Charlie, however, and had contracted tuberculosis during his confinement, and his relative convinced the court to release the young killer into their custody so he could, uh, well, go home and die. T to put the cherry on top, that strategy worked. Charlie Colley was acquitted of all charges. After his release, he was sent to live with his grandmother, Michael Colley, and aunt Mary McHugh, and a sister, Mamie, who I'd say slept with one eye open the whole time he was there. But fate finally caught up with uh, Charlie, who'd supposedly butchered his entire family. On, November, um, on Monday, February 20th, 1905, Charlie Colley passed away from consumption, which is another word for TB, at his grandfather's home in River Road between Beck's Run and Six Mile Ferry. Though his relatives did their best to keep the funeral arrangements a secret because they knew it would be a complete circus, it was later revealed that Charlie was cremated and his ashes buried in the family plot in St. Mary Magdalene's Cemetery. Michael Colley, the grandfather who played an instrumental role in bringing Charlie home because he had TB, passed away five days later. If I would guess, I'd probably say it was from TB because that stuff was rampant back in, folks. A little something that I found that I thought I'd add here was a little more information. It came from Hannah's great-great-granddaughter, Marion Perry. The family story about the murder was that Westinghouse may have been involved due to the interest in Charlie's invention. Now, he was working on several other inventions as well. Now, Joseph, baby Joseph, survived and got well 
went on and lived with his sister Ella, who raised him like a son. Charles was locked up for a spell in Dixmont, which was a state hospital for the criminally insane, and that's where doctors uh, tried to figure him out, you know, and probably most likely where he contracted tuberculosis. Folks, what'd you think? You think Charlie actually did it? Or was there involvement by another person or group that made Charlie look like Ed Gain himself? I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that had to be tell, told. Just cried out for the telling, in fact. If you like the podcast, throw us a rate and review on whatever podcatcher you're listening on, and don't forget to subscribe and fo- or follow us, whichever they require or ask. Come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I will see you then.